Hello and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bergun. Today on the podcast, I have Dan Felder. He is a game designer who has worked at several studios, including EA, Blizzard, and Abercom Games, where he worked on the popular CCG Faria. He's also written a bunch of game design articles on game balance, uh, tabletop design, tabletop RPGs, I should say, free-to-play games. The free-to-play games topic is the one that really made me want to have Dan on because I, so I feel like there was a fork in the road in my life around 1993-1994 when Magic the Gathering came on the scene. I do remember seeing, I had some friends who like kind of played the game uh, and I had some like, you know, second order friends who played it, but I never got into it. It never appealed to me. Something about the idea that you could just keep buying more cards and like the booster packs, even when I was young, there was something about that that just felt um, not appealing to me. Like, and I, I'm sure that if I had had the right friend or been in the right group that was all playing it, I would have, you know, gotten over that. But that never happened for me. So I, I never got into magic. And I, I, now it's been almost, you know, 30 years. And I still don't like <laughs> Magic the Gathering. Uh, this past year or so, I installed Magic the Gathering Arena. Uh, over the years, I've like bashed my head against uh, Gwent and um, what else? Runeterra and um, Hearthstone, of course, many, many times trying to like these games. Um, I recently bought uh, a big pack of like a thousand, you know, like random, like, you know, not good cards uh, to play in person. I figured I'll make my little ecosystem and um, try to play the game that way. I've yet to like really dive in with that. Uh, I'm also a little bit skeptical that it's going to work for me. Um, I did. I recently have been trying to get into Magic the Gathering Arena. Anyway, I'm going on and on about uh, CCGs because I just, you know, I feel very alienated from my game design, particularly game designers. Uh, You know, almost every game designer that I know or people, person who is interested in talking about game design is, a, you know, was a big magic head their whole life, more or less, and has this um, so much uh, respect and admiration for uh, Magic the Gathering. And for me, uh, I've never enjoyed the game, uh, and I don't like the concept of it, and I don't like uh, the business model. Like, I don't like the idea of selling people random items that they don't know what they're buying. I don't... Uh, so anyway, th- th- this I, I bring this all up because it, it sort of feeds into my thoughts on uh, gotcha games and, and free-to-play games to some extent. And, uh, you know, I obviously talk more about this in the in the conversation with Dan, but I, you know, I, I go back and forth and I have these kind of like moments of doubt about it. And um, I, I sort of bounce back and forth between moments of like, you know, I, I have to be missing something. There's there people enjoy this so much and they like it so much. And and I, I think probably the reality is somewhere in between. Like there is really something wrong with the idea that you're just going to perpetually add cards to a game. I think there's something off about that. And I also think there's something off about, uh, you know, real, like someone's, someone using money as a resource in the game to gain power, you know, the pay to win complaint. I think there is something wrong about that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I do think that there are real things that I've missed about that, that whole world. 
um, particularly in the social arena, you know, being part of this um, group that is trading cards and, and you know, talking about uh, admiring people's decks and things like that. There is something that I really have missed out on. And of course, there's something real that people are actually appreciating there. Uh, when it gets to the more modern era with the gotcha games um, and some free to play games, I think that um, and actually I think Dan probably ends up sort of agreeing with me that there are a lot of really bad business practices. Um, everyone is all these big companies are like just chasing this this same exact model that it's just like totally uh, it doesn't it, it doesn't work. It's it reminds me of like a bubble or something, you know, in, in economics. Um, it's like this design pattern bubble. Um, and and so I think, you know, we had a good conversation. I think, honestly, we could have gone another hour or two talking about this stuff. And actually, after the podcast, we we chatted for a really long time one on one on Discord. Um, and yeah, so it was a really good conversation. I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say my opinion has changed that dramatically, um, but, uh, you know, on these kinds of games. But I think we do agree that there is a way to do a free to play thing that is uh, that is good and respects people and doesn't try to decide for them what they should be retented into, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, uh, there's one conversation that we have, I forget if we had it in this podcast or in the conversations afterwards, but, you know, there is this idea that after playing a game for a short time, there can be these like pain points that could cause you to leave. And the idea, the good version of retention is, well, we're going to like keep you like, you know, holding on to this because, uh, you're gonna love it once you get over these pain points, you know, we know that. And so we're going to sort of like use these techniques to kind of keep you in there. And uh, I don't know. I, I feel like there's something weird. First of all, the the uh, the motivation is not I know you're really going to love this game. It's you know, it's a business oriented motivation. Um, retention basically means, you know, more financial success. Um, and that's where they're coming from with that, uh, with, the, with these companies. Um but uh, I don't know. Yeah, so it's kind of complicated, you know. So uh, I, I have a bunch of different thoughts on it. Uh, and it's something I could probably talk about a lot more. I'd like to have some more guests on about this topic. So if you have some suggestions, people that you'd like to hear me talk to about the topic of free-to-play mobile games, uh, we have a nice thing in here about, uh, you know, getting diagnosed um, when a, a playtester or a player plays a game and they notice something is off. They don't necessarily know what's off, but they know something's off. And that's sort of where I find myself with uh, with the, the with CCGs, but more so with gacha games. Um, and so I'm interested to just explore this more. In any case, please enjoy this conversation uh, that I had with Dan Felder. Oh, and before I start the uh, interview, I wanted to just mention when I got Dan on uh, usually what I do at the start is I ask, is there anything you want to like talk about, you know, uh, before we get started recording? Uh, but I often will start recording soon after that if I notice that the conversation like really starts taking off. And with this, uh, with Dan, the conversation like really dove right into the theory stuff. So pretty quickly on, I was like, oh, I need to hit record on this and start getting this because I think this is going to be the show. But later on, Dan, you know, was like felt regret and was was like. Oh, I, you know, I wanted to uh, kind of, you know, say thanks for having me and all that kind of stuff. So 
you know, don't be don't be put off by the fact that Dan was uh, very excited to get into talking about game design. I feel the same way. I would do the same thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, Dan is a very nice and uh, gracious guy. And uh, thank you, Dan, for coming on. And here's the show. There's sort of this philo- this breakdown of often game design discourse is, I think, very tactical or very philosophical, but not really in the middle. Um, uh. There's often this dis- there's often this discussion of here is how this game did this thing and why that thing is good, or this is why agency matters and maximizing agency is always good. Mm-hmm. And, beca- and on a philosophical level, it's almost like moral judgments. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yep. And I feel like the el- the really useful stuff is actually in the middle, <laughs> mm-hmm. where it's like, um, here is a human psychological element of like, um, and here is why it produces good feelings, and here is when it doesn't. Um, I think also I find something that people um, often find valuable when I talk to designers because I've d- I do a lot of men- I've done I'm often put on mentoring tracks at work and things like that. Um, and when I mentor uh, designers, one of the things that comes back a lot is this idea of they always ask me, like, when, how do you get promoted, et cetera. And I think something that's valuable is to talk about that when you're first getting started, there are certain things you do, like when you first get in the game industry um, or you're trying to get into, you often like learn a few principles mm-hmm. and you over focus on them. And then later on, like when you're mid-level, you kind of learn that there are other things that matter, too. Like, you know, it's not just counterplay or not just agency or not just accessibility <laughs> or not yeah. just depth. Uh, all these things matter. And then at like, the higher level, I found that it's mostly the question of how much does each matter? <laughs> yeah, and um, everything's... In, in a given context. <laughs> right, and everything everything's kind of a trade-off, you know? Like, um, and it's right. trading one thing for another thing. I mean, that's all exactly. art and design is, is always making trade-offs. Right, and I find a lot of people see like, hey, this decision limits this thing that I that I've learned is good, therefore it's a bad decision and just design better. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, <laughs> it's actually like we're gonna sacrifice a small amount of depth to gain this massive amount of accessibility. Um and in this game design, there's already functionally infinite depth even after that standpoint. Like no mm. one will ever fully master this game. So that's a really good trade-off. <laughs> That's uh, it's funny that resonates very hard with me right now. Like I'm almost like I don't know if you know like my any of my games or whatever, but I have a game right now that I just brought put out in February, and it is in that situation almost exactly as you described it, where like the depth is extremely high, and the worst thing that happens sometimes is you know you have like your most the people who talk to you about your game are the people who play your game the most, right? And so That's, yeah. They're, so they're, <laughs> they're really deep into your game. So they know about the skill cap and they're, they're like, you know, they're in there and they will give you the feedback. You know, they don't want you to change it. They don't want you to make that trade off that you just described because, um, you know, they're already in the door and they already love the game. And honestly, they, like people who like love your game. I mean, that's one of the problems with like an iterative design, which I'd also love to talk to you about. Yeah, um, I have opinions. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you how do you deal with that? Like, do you just plow forward and do what you think is? I mean, that's the job of a designer, right? Is to just do what you think is best. I've had to deal with this a lot. Um, Like, part of it I think is valuable is discussing feedback. And are you hearing a dog barking, by the way, on the other end? Uh, Um, Nope, not that I noticed. Okay, good. All right. So one of the things that 
like I, there's a lot to this discussion, but often it really comes down to getting to the why of the feedback and not what the feedback is. Like what the feedback is is almost irrelevant, and a lot of designers get trapped in trying to argue with someone that their feedback is invalid. And it's like like your suggestion would not work because X. And it's like don't that's you are so wasting your time here. Yeah. Your yeah. goal your goal is not to convince somebody that their argument for how to fix your game won't work. Your goal is to understand what they are feeling and if what and what they are experiencing and if that's what you want. Yeah, yeah. So you, there's always something behind that, right? Even if the the details of what they're saying are inaccurate, there's right. something that's real behind it. Often the best feedback I've ever gotten has been completely nonsensical and self-contradictory because often like cr criticism often strikes the highest point. It's like lightning. It's like, what is the most obvious thing to complain about? I think Dark Souls 2 is one of the best examples of like mass hallucination about this sort of situation. Dark Souls 2 is not a very well-built game. It is certainly very disappointing compared to Dark Souls 1. It is flawed in so many ways. There are multiple like 10-hour video series on YouTube deconstructing every piece of frame data and exactly why the game fails thematically or why it's brilliant thematically, why it fails on a gameplay level with its changes, why those changes are actually brilliant and back and forth these series grow and grow and grow and none of i've watched like a 90 minute video talking about why dark souls 2 is good actually like and in response to like a 30 minute video then and then i watched a 10 hour video series you know while playing diablo <laughs> you know mm -hmm. uh, but, but like about analyzing why that video what didn't work and nowhere in all of those like 13 hours of analysis did they talk about like when i first played the game for like two hours and stopped and i'm a huge souls fan like the things that I, I was just screaming at with my friend, we were playing together. They didn't notice any of them. <laughs> like mm. none of the, the stuff they're talking about matters at all mm -hmm. compared to the things that we were actually experiencing. Like the sound effects were wrong. Mm. Like that was this huge element of gameplay. I'm hitting a boss that's like an armored knight and I'm hearing the tink, tink, tink sound, mm. which is what happens when you hit his shield. It's the exact same sound effects when you hit his shield as when you hit his body and he's fully Ooh. armored. So I'm like, oh, okay, I can't damage him. I must, do I have to find a back? Do I have to hit his knee? <sighs> do I, this looks like this thing over here. But no, his, it turns out I'm damaging him the whole time that I hit his body, but I don't notice that. Because the sound effect is the same as when I hit his shield. And it just sounds and feels bad. It's very liberal. Yeah. Metal on metal. Of course <laughs> it would make a tink sound. But you do that in Dark Souls. You hit Artorius in the body. You hear like a deep gushing sound or something I expect. I don't remember off the top of my head. But it's very clear that you're not like clinking off of a shield. You and have to sound use sound language as it's understood, mm -hmm. right? Like tink means nothing's yep. happening, right? Pretty much. Yeah, and if you hit the shield and you hit the body at the same time, not only does it mean that nothing's happening, it's not a satisfying sound. Games are largely about producing a satisfied emotional reaction in the player. Um, it's why feedback, visual feedback and auditory feedback matters so much. Um, and so the idea behind that is, look at Dark Souls, you look at it like it's animations, this door opening animation was clearly recycled from something, and like the hand is flailing through the door. You look at like the way things are hanging, look at where lights emanating from the scene, and it's like emanating from the ground, and, and the lights are shadowed, and it's like all these things are totally messed up, and no one talks about any of them. Right. Like I saw a two-hour Joseph Anderson deep, deep dive of Super Mario Odyssey, and him basically saying it's bad, actually. And here's this two-hour video arguing why. And nowhere in all those two hours, like, does he actually talk about any of the 
whimsical, delightful moments that make the game what it is. It's always about here's the move set, here's the moon design. So let, and that's let, the only let me let me ask you about that. Let me stop you on that yep. example because so in that case, he's saying the game is bad, but you're you're not saying like so my original point was when someone comes at a game and they have some complaint or whatever that right. we don't necessarily take the specifics of what their their proposed solutions or the, even their identification mm -hmm. of the problem but we do we under, we we sort of like there's something that they are pointing at right like there there is a reality right. that they're pointing at and so for for, sure. for uh, galaxy uh is that how you feel about that youtuber or is it that they were just like totally wrong or so the Mario Odyssey, I think it's important that... Oh, Odyssey, right. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's, I think it's the important to draw the distinction with Odyssey that this person is not coming at this from a standpoint of, I didn't like this, I think the game is better. He's saying that, like, I, he is trying to do the work of a game critic, and he basically has this very interesting and illustrative moment in, like, halfway through the video. And I'll get to your question in a second, I just want to clarify this point, is that... Um, halfway through the video, basically, he says, or half an hour in, at some point um, in the video, he points out, like, the game has all these problems, and it's really poorly designed because, mm -hmm. by, by these objective criteria or so on. And then he says, but it's insanely, all these critics said that they loved it. It was a huge trip to their childhood. It's incredibly highly rated. It's people saying it's the best of the series. They're saying they applauded at the end of the credits. Like, and my thought would be, okay. Therefore, my theory as to why this game is bad is incomplete or invalid. There must mm. be some things I'm missing. His response was, all these critics don't know what they're doing. And it's like, you see the problem here? Sure. <laughs> so that's actually my point is, if somebody has a reaction, that reaction exists. You can't argue that they shouldn't be having fun or that they should be having fun. Right. So for his point, he played the game and he, I don't know, he, when I, if I was giving, if he was giving, my feedback was coming to me, I would be like asking questions and asking like, okay, like let's unpack the moons or like let's unpack the thing. I would ask certain questions. I try to figure out, are you just feeling not challenged? Mm -hmm. Are you feeling just aimless and bored or that your efforts don't matter? Like, are you feeling like you just don't, that you've already mastered the controls that there is enough diversity in the way you're playing or the diversity and challenge? Like, what is the, what is the actual feeling you're getting and what might be actually causing that? Because mm -hmm. you might be, because often people say like, I am bored in Dark Souls. It must be because the, heal the healing system is obviously different. Therefore, I'm going to blame the healing system and try to rationalize that feeling. And so I always try to take steps back to figure out like, what is actually the feeling you're getting that's undermining it? Like a good example, just in PowerPoint presentations, we were, we were getting our glass green greenlit at EA that I was on. Um, at f first, we had a hurdle of a bunch of internal like meetings, and people were like asking for more data and saying, we want more data on this, we want more data on that, and we keep giving it to them, but it just made the presentation slower and weaker. And then finally, we sort of like like we sort of set, took a step back and uh, we said, hey, to each other, the fact they're asking for more data doesn't mean they want more data. It means that they're feeling uncertain and they don't know why. Mm. And so mm -hmm. they want more data because obviously that's what you get when you feel uncertain, when you don't know this is a good bet. You just want more data. And the requests we were getting were really weird. It was stuff like, do graphics matter in games? Can we get data on that? And it's like, what? So basically we started, uh, I mean, basically you had this m mantra that I wrote on the board after a while that said, um, let's turn the FUD into FOMO. <laughs> and Wait, what was the first, the what was the first term? FUD? Let's, Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know that one. Yeah. Let's turn the FUD into FOMO. And basically, instead of just trying to answer all of the objections, let's just switch the presentation up and sell the upside so high that people just 
are so focused on that that they don't focus as much on the uncertainty part. Right. <laughs> and that worked. And so all we actually ended up taking out more data because the more data we raised, the more questions they could ask about the data that would make them feel that that makes wonder if they they couldn't trust it. So we started going to more emotional things by saying it's going to be like this game, which did well, except it's going to be this difference. And and this difference is something that we're all, that the industry is already interested in right now. And they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And so getting those removing data actually helped us address the issue that was what we were asking for more data. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with the, the whole concept that, you know, people don't necessarily know what, they're not game designers, a lot of these people, and they're not, you know, professional game testers necessarily, or uh, they don't know how to necessarily give feedback. And it's, it's you know, it's kind of like being a doctor or something, right? It's like, you know, a person will it's tell exact you... analogy. Oh, Almost yeah. the exact analogy I give. I always say, like, you know, that you could, they could, they'll come and tell you, my stomach hurts, therefore I have brain cancer. Exactly. And you could say, well, there's no way you have brain cancer, but their stomach still hurts. Right. right. <laughs> don't just argue that they don't have brain cancer and then send them home. <laughs> there you go. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. So I want to get back to your other point about the, um, the super tactical versus the too, almost philosophical in game design writing and game design discourse. Uh, I think the, let, let, let me sort of extrapolate on what I think you were getting at there. The super tactical being like, here's how to make a good, you know, very, very narrow, specific kind of game, you know, like, so, like really just one game, like how to, right. how to replicate an existing game or less is those kinds of things, which, um, yeah, that, that's never been terribly interesting to me. And then the philosophical side has been more interesting to me because like, you know, I, I come from, I come from music like theory world. Uh, that was like my background. And so I was always looking for more, you know, constructive uh, game design theory. Um, and so the philosophical stuff has been appealing to me because I do feel like if we could come up with some like prescriptive, you know, uh, like uh, statements or whatever about games mm -hmm. that might lead us into some new exciting directions. And in fact, I think even if our prescriptive statements are wrong, they can still lead us in some into some really interesting, exciting directions. So well, you see, go on. this yeah. is actually where I totally agree with you in principle and where the reason I, I just draw a distinction between philosophy and like I don't and I, I don't know exactly what the the right term is, but like st uh, principle or strategy. And so I, I think strategy mm -hmm. is very resonant for game designers. So I often use it. But the main idea is I actually come from a um, and it's not really correct to say I come from because I come from professionally. But I was um, I did a lot of like playwriting festivals. It's national playwriting festivals when I was younger. Um, I was deep, deep, deep into story structure and writing, and I was planning on being a narrative designer at first. Cool. And my background is very much in narrative um, mm -hmm. before it's in games, and now it's much more in games. But I started learning um, game design and teaching myself game design by basically doing two things. One was drawing heavily on the question of why are some stories better than others, which always fascinated me. Mm -hmm. Like, what makes a story good or bad and why? And so I dove really deep into, you know, I read the Robert McKee stuff. I read Lagosergi. I read A Stein on Writing. Just all these like people that put up these sort of large arc plot, four-act structure, three-act structure concepts mm -hmm. of what makes, you know, principles of good writing. Sure. And that really resonates with me. And I think it's very practical. But I think there's a very strong distinction between what I like to call philosophy and what I often call like principles or strategy. Because mm -hmm. the idea of... Like philosophy is often 
I am going like I think of philosophy very much as reasoning from first principles without any interaction with the actual world. Okay. Like if you think about you know Plato's cave, you know examples yeah. and things like that. That's sure. sort of what the game designer thing is. It's like you know the, if a game it often originates with something like this. Like a game is therefore a piece of interactivity. Therefore, any, in order for a game to be better, it must by definition be more interactive than others. Therefore, we cannot call a visual novel a game unless it has a point of interactivity, and it is on on the whole a weaker game than something that is more interactive. Starcraft sure. is therefore objectively a you know bullshit. Very very platonic I, like word game type stuff yeah and anything that argues about the definition of game is a non-starter for me mm -hmm. um the real thing is all i'm interested in is how do i make a human feel a thing mm -hmm. like i'm trying to create a human experience using every tool at my disposal in this medium what is the most effective way to create that experience based off of decades of other games that have proven to work cognitive science which is exhaustively tested across humanity and my own instincts and artistic vision so Basically, my whole goal is always like that's what I call principles. I have very, very strong principles about how to, how to design a game. Um, in terms of like, I have a very like a concrete process and a, a often different process for different, for different problems that I use all the time, and it's proven to work very effectively. It's helped a lot of other people, at, um, at least in my work and, and my coworkers and people I've been mentoring, um, get better faster. But fundamentally. I think that those principles are missing. And that's why I say we're missing in the middle, where we talk about tactical stuff of this works in this game and why, mm -hmm. um, but, it's hard, but often it's not broadly applicable. When you can get that broadly applicable to a high-level series of theories that are more like scientific theories than philosophical concepts, um, where it's like, I believe that get humans work this way, and we can apply that knowledge to our games if we want to create this emotional reaction in them. So often a lot of my game design principles come out of cognitive science more than anything else. And I think a lot of people approach game design from a philosophical reasoning by first principles, what is a game and therefore what makes a good game statement. Instead of for me, what makes a good game is what is the creator's design goal for the game? What is the player's you know, experiential goal that they want? Because um, you, you look at it from both angles. Because uh, you get a great game that somebody made ask accidentally. <laughs> but basically, a good design is, did I accomplish my goals that I was setting out for player experience as efficiently and maximally effectively as possible? Um, the more efficiently you do it and the better you do it, the better the design. Then a good game is basically anything that the player experience matches up to. So somebody might have tried to create a terror like a, a horrifying game and made a really funny game by accident, but it might still be a good game, just not a well-designed game. Interesting. And Okay. Yeah, it's so principles that lead in those directions, I think, are immensely valuable. And I would love to have a lot more discussion there. But often I find people get shut down in terms of, like, counterplay is better, therefore games need it, um, without any concept of, but why is counterplay better? Why specifically in this genre does counterplay matter? Does it matter at all mm -hmm. in this situation? And in other circumstances, because games are so many, are such complicated systems of so many interacting things, so often, some, this is why I think the GDC talks are always completely at odds with each other, is like so many, time, many times somebody says, this is how you solve a problem. And it's like, this is, the, this is the thing that worked in this game and it's good. And the issue is it works in that context because those people making that design goal with those other assumptions and those other limitations, it was the right decision. Mm -hmm. Like you look at early D&D, &D, like first edition, second edition, um, especially first edition, all the there are like 75 terrible decisions that all cancel each other out to make a, a actually effective game. And like 
all the what's, what's interesting is there's like permadeath is there people get experience at different rates the system is way too simple bookkeeping is way too high but when you put a, a really high bookkeeping you need a much simpler system when everybody mm. dies permanently you need them to get xp at different rates to a degree so that they get rewarded differently and they can catch up to each other or more powerful characters are rewarded for going longer um, and also, when everybody dies permanently and you're gaining XP at different rates because different levels, everybody gets to take turns being the big brother. <laughs> and so all these interesting ripple, design ripple effects happen out to create a very unique style of play that has since been adapted to other better systems. But if you just change any one of those, fix any one of those problems, the whole framework collapses. Let, let me uh, let me throw something at you that uh, where my brain goes when you're talking about something like D and D, which is I often think about you know that a lot of our games and the things that we consider uh, you know the greatest games ever made and uh, that that have formed a lot of our ideas about like what is a great game like and all this kind of stuff like a lot of that or some amount of that it's hard to know how what percentage of that is these were games that were just at the right place at the right time kind of accidents of history they are the way they are because of a bunch of accidents of history and then we have like these post hoc rationalizations for them and like yeah there are some real rationalizations too but um, you know sometimes I wonder like how much you know that, that that's sort of where i live a lot of the time is you know that 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 we often look at our, the history of video games as like this is just the natural progression of you know it had to be this way i i sort of think of it as like it could have been completely different if there was oh, different absolutely right economic okay yeah 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely questionable to me, because if you just look at how different genres have evolved, um, people get into a copy and paste mentality, partly because game systems are so complicated, partly because the, the technology is done. You don't make what is the best solution for your game. You make what is the easiest solution for your game. Mm -hmm. um, most games don't ship when they're done. They ship when they're fun, like minimum viable fun. Uh -huh. And so... If you're going to be innovating a lot, you're going to be t you're going to be copying and pasting a lot of other things from elsewhere more often, because you have you spend your time budget to innovate more. Um, if the, one of the, my most consistent reasons people think I'm creative at work is because I will just not stay within genre when I'm looking for solutions. If I need a solution for something that's like this is going to be an epic, exciting, you know, triumphant thing that we need a big goal in our game, I'm going to not just stay. Let's say I'm making a I don't know. Um, a 2D platformer. I'm not just going to look at other 2D platformers. I will, but I'm not just going to look at other 2D platformers that do this. I'm going to start looking at RTS games and <laughs> that also have these epic, exciting moments. I'm going to start looking at big, like God of War and Dark Souls, and like what could that do? So like when our my game Faria, well, a game I worked on Faria, not at all my game <laughs> Faria, um, but I I love it very much. Um, but when I was working on Faria, we had we needed this like sense of stuff for players to do before just being thrown into player versus player combat because the game was incredibly deep strategically and players needed time to get comfortable with the game and discover new strategies before they just got stomped on. Uh, so we were looking for things like how do you keep people engaged up to a long, you know, up to the end and how do you keep, make a, and I was like, okay, well, PVE, obviously, but what's good PVE look like? It needs to keep them in the game so that eventually they're going to want to like go do other PVPs. It's got to keep them around for a while. And it's also got to have these big epic moments, these triumphs. It doesn't just get static over time. And so I started drawing on World of Warcraft and Dark Souls. World of Warcraft answers the question of how do you do long-term compelling PvE for leveling quite effectively. And Dark Souls answers the question about the these epic boss fights you're grinding up to. And that ended up like inspiring two features. And at that point, card games of the major digital live service variety were not doing that. And only like four years later, we're starting to see 
like real push in that direction. Mm. Um, so it's not that like it was brilliant. It's just that we looked outside our genre and found ways other people had solved it. And every MMO <laughs> had started solving it the same way because all the MMOs did that. And people are very afraid to look outside of genre sometimes. And, you know, I looked, I, I study theme park design. <laughs> I look at the history of rides. What does that do? What can we learn from that? Theater, music, art, you know, um, I look at menus and industrial design um, and th because you can get uh, good ideas from almost anywhere. The question is always, what are you trying to accomplish in the human experience? What is another thing that did that? What can you take any tools for that and use them here? And if you look broad enough, you can be very, very effective at that. So when but earlier you were talking about um, this kind of like psychological uh, approach to design and mm -hmm. thinking about how some, uh, you know, so, sometimes we have these guidelines uh, where uh, people tend to say like, oh, it's good if a game has counterplay, that sort of thing. Um, right. Another one of those that comes to mind for me is uh, is, you know, the pay to win concept or right. Like, like that, that a lot of people have a very uh, negative reaction to the concept of being able to pur purchase with money, you know, in game advantages, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and so yep. that, that might be a good uh, segue into our conversation on free to play games, gotcha games uh, and these kinds sure. of things. And um, you know, like especially uh, you as someone who's worked on games like that, like um, or not gotcha. I don't think you've worked on a gotcha game exactly, right? You, I but, can neither confirm nor deny, except that I have because Hearthstone and also stuff. <laughs> right, sure. Okay, so um, so what's your what's your opinion on these games? Uh, what's your opinion on these business models? Um, and you know, I, I, if you want, I can give you mine first. Um, no, no, and you can I'm react fine. to it. Uh, yeah. I'm happy to. Uh, so in terms of gotcha and free-to-play, it's worth noting that in the West, it's very easy for us to assume that everybody thinks like we do. Um, like a lot of APAC countries, like Asia Pacific, um, actually thinks the opposite. Like if you try to – people in um, – often especially in China, there's a, a – the cultural – feeling of pay to win this is by no means exhaustive no more than any culture is ever exhaustive or affects everybody but the bias is the other direction like people get offended if you can like if like free players can get what they paid for with their hard-earned money i remember like you know there could be there were controversies you could look up about you know cards that could generate free premium cards for people or things like that uh, and so the philosophy is always like i'm supporting the game i'm i'm actually investing i matter I want well, that well, that would value. be here too, right? Like people would get upset about that here as well, wouldn't they? If they well, were paying not, money, not necessarily. I mean, they do okay. to an extent, but like the larger accepted here is like the game should be better for free players, and I'm mad at you for charging money for or this. equally good or, for free players, right? Or equally good, yes. Yeah. Um, and then the philosophy um, elsewhere in different cultures, and uh, just China comes to mind because we talk about that market a lot, is just that. Is often is often the opposite. It's often like no, um, the primary the primary customer is the paying customer, and the free players are here, you know, just to. It's it's we're being chaired by letting the free players in, but the paying customers are the ones who you should be focusing on, and we should be the first citizens, and we should be privileged. Whereas the free more free to play games over here is more like, hey, you know, if you want to pay to look cool or to do something like that, that's fine. Maybe you get a few advantages, but generally you should be focusing on if it's a free to play game, you should be focusing on the free experience. So my point is that there's different cultural assumptions, and there is no objective like truth. The way that I like to think about free-to-play um, is many different ways because it's such a broad thing. 
you can do it in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Like there's a version of it that's basically just demo plus buy to play because, you know, you get some access to the game for free then you can pay for more access to unlock content. Mm -hmm. um, so at an objective level, nobody really cares about if you offer a demo of a game for free. That's clearly only good for the for players because <laughs> they get to at least try some of the game before they buy. Mm -hmm. So the idea of some amount of game for free and some amount of it behind a paywall is not inherently objectionable. The issues get much more psychological in most circumstances where people often feel like they have purchased the game already, but they aren't allowed to unlock more. So, for example, DLC was so much more controversial when it was on the disc that you bought because mm -hmm. you're like, I bought the disc, but you locked it. Mm -hmm. Even though it's really just a delivery mechanism, <laughs> like if, if you had to buy it and they sent you another disc, it would feel so much better than if it was already on the disc you bought, even though it's worse for you. Right. Um, so I think a lot about what parts of that are psychological. Now, to be fair, this is, is not just something that you can tell your players that they're wrong to feel that way. It's good to recognize what they're feeling and why, because that can help you with perceptions. But it's and because if you're a righteous, good person making things for people because you love it and because you want to make money doing what you love and you want to give players a great time, you just want to make sure that, you know, you understand what players are feeling and why so that you can present yourself the way that you honestly feel. Well, and also um, to go back to what we talked about earlier, there is something there, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's something. They, yeah, they don't know what it is, but their stomach hurts to use your metaphor. There's, yes, there's definitely like they're getting a negative emotional reaction often in when certain types of free to play. Um, some free to play is so some amount of it is self reinforcing. Like some people have made it their life's work to try to actively like it's basically um, I like to call it socially acceptable cyberbullying. <laughs> um, some people just really like bullying people and they like to be righteous when they do it. So they just like wait for anybody to cross the object, the like the subjective line of it is a free to play. It is a paid game with microtransactions. Therefore we can send, we are justified in sending the developers death threats. Um, not a fan of that, but it's easy to, to dismiss the real concerns when just looking at those people. Um, I like to focus much more on like, why is the game better either because of what you can make for players or because of the experience itself because of free-to-play aspects or because of gotcha aspects. Um, a really good example is like gotcha used for good is insanely fun. Just the idea of randomized items in a you know thing that you open, that just is fun. There is to be able to hit a possible jackpot. The idea that you can spend like a small amount of money and maybe get an incredibly high value item, that simple fun of that extra excitement is really, really valuable when done correctly. Now, most people don't do it, in my opinion, correctly for the player experience, maybe from a monetization experience. But as an example, you can totally change the psychology just by changing the expectations. A really good example of this was in Feria, we um, had a... We wanted to create some more excitement um, with these sort of chests you would get after a fight. So they used to always give like, you'd always get like 10 gold after a fight. And you could use gold to like buy stuff that you need to progress in the game. And so we decided we wanted to make it a bit more fun and just make it a bit random and have some jackpots. So like normally you would start gaining like a smaller amount of gold, but sometimes you would get like a thousand gold. And it's just really low, but it was kind of fun to after every single um, fight, you would be able to have this possible jackpot. Now, players hated this change. 
not because the idea was bad, but because the presentation made their experience disappointing. They were trained to believe that 10 gold was norm already. And so they saw that after this change, they were always getting six, seven, five, six, four, five, seven, um, which was the because the average was supposed to be the same, so it wouldn't imbalance the economy. So they just saw a net drop. Now, if we started with that, and then the players would have just thought that was the norm, and then every down, then they would get a 1,000 gold jackpot, and they would be delighted. So when we we ended up reverting that change, I believe, or just increasing the gold rate mm-hmm. um, so that the average was like more like what it used to be. But then we did another thing that was also basically like a simplified loot box related to gold, where you could basically um, pay a small amount of money and you would get paid, um, you would basically, you, it did a lot of different things psychologically. For one thing, it's you didn't just buy a subscription, you hired this miner to work for you. And like the shop description was like, you can hire Goki, this cute little frog miner, to mine gold for you. Um, he'll, and then what we did was, we changed the presentation and we said, he'll always find at least 300 gold, but sometimes he finds a lot more. And so the focus was on 300, but sometimes more. Okay. And so players were never disappointed when he found 300 gold. But then every now and then he would find 500 or 1,000 and they would be so happy. And Goki was like the most popular thing in the game for a while. Like they just loved him. So my point is loot boxes are not just a, people often talk about loot boxes or gotcha as a psychological manipulation technique to get people addicted to things. That's not really what they are. It is a fun series of uncertainty. It adds uncertainty into the game, which can be positive with upside or it can be stressful with downside. Um, It can be consistently disappointing. And often people make the mistake of focusing on the jackpot and making you buy boxes randomly hoping to get the jackpot. Whereas I find it's often more effective from an emotional standpoint to focus on the baseline, make that good, but have the chance of getting this jackpot worked into this thing that you're always getting. Yeah, I mean that all sounds that I agree with uh, with all of that. I mean, I'm my I have um I like I like bounce back and forth between rather rather like uh, aggressive thoughts on particularly gacha games uh, to something more like I guess maybe perhaps your position on it. First of all, like I like the idea of a free to play game and then you can purchase you know things in it that are uh, you know I purchase the full game or whatever like I, no problem with that at all I also have no problem with the way that League of Legends uh, does it um, mm-hmm. that that's totally cool to me um, you know it, but but it does seem a little weird uh, like there's also different way like I've seen some games so uh, the, the example that I was the first example I remember seeing this on an online semi-competitive video game was uh, in Battlefield 2 I don't know if you ever played that one but uh, they it was an online shooter and then they released an expansion pack and the expansion people who bought the expansion pack which was like another 50 bucks or whatever uh 30 40 or 50 bucks uh could play with their like new expansion pack guns with the other people who didn't have those and like right. that's a really naked example to me of like you know uh I agree with you, like the idea, the concept of like, oh, we have our free players, we sort of like let them in, but they're not really playing for real. Um, But then we have our quote, like our paying customers and they're for them, it's a good experience. But I actually think like uh, for that Battlefield example, and there are some games that are similar now, um, it's sort of bad for 
both in two different ways because on the one hand um like it's terrible for the people who didn't buy the expansion because they're just getting trounced by these people with uh better stuff than they have because mm-hmm. and it's like psychologically horrible to know like oh it's because they bought this extra stuff like that's such a bad feeling and then on the other hand it's also not great even for the people who bought the stuff like you're it's almost like you know d- you know uh it's like when you put in a cheat code or something and you you know it's like you every little kid thinks that when they put the cheat code in it's going to make it so much more fun and it actually makes it kind of less fun because they've like taken the challenge away from themselves that sort of thing well i'm going to be controversial here and i'm going to say that in some circumstances with some games that's utterly terrible and it ruins the trust in the game and it ruins the fun of the gameplay in other circumstances I think that's incredibly fun, and it really depends on how players engage with the game mm-hmm. and what the game's goals are trying to be. Um, and so, as an example, Magic the Gathering is what I always return to as a game that I enjoyed shopping in the game. Like when I loved going down to the card store, and it, because there were so many ways to engage with it. When I was a kid, that had like you know ten dollars a month to spend on card games or something mm-hmm. um, like, you know, just getting a terribly small allowance, just uh, $10 a month for card games or whatever. You know, there was things I could buy with that. And it was really fun. My other friends were in mostly a relatively similar, you know, income situation, but there were some people like that had like a lot more access to it when we were all like fifth grade or something. And so I would buy a new intro deck that cost $10 or I would buy three booster packs and see what I got. And then I would try to trade with other people for stuff that I thought was cool. And maybe I got something that, you know, they valued a lot and I didn't, or we could, I could trade a bunch of random things. Um, Or I could dive through the bulk boxes and who knows what's going to be there. One time I found like several Lotus petals that were worth like $7 each, but they were in the commons box. So they had a little black expansion symbol for 10 cents each. And it was amazing to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, because I only had a few dollars, and the fact that I could I could open a Mythic Rare, well, not at the time of Mythic Rare, they didn't exist, but I could open a Super Chase Rare um, in my packs was really exciting to me. And it was a way for me to engage with the possibility of getting access to some of these cool things. Um, people who bought new, buy new Magic cards play against people that don't have them all the time. Um, and it's like fine <laughs> because like the game uh the, and the game does a lot of complex context for why it's fine but also if you just don't want to engage with that you can engage play more casually and then you, they might have access to cards you don't but you don't need those cards to play because commander has multiplayer formats where there's people you could participate and have a full engaged experience without having the best cards because you can team up on somebody who's going really far ahead or something like that. So really what people respond to in a very strongly directly competitive game is the assumption of what do I need to participate? Mm-hmm. And so often in Magic the Gathering, the conversation revolves around like, here are the good decks that you should be playing, but here are some budget options. And if you don't want to do that, here are this other stuff you can do. And so players spend a lot of time thinking about what decks they're going to buy into. Um, at the kitchen table, they talk about, like, you know, they pick up a few singles, they soup up a deck, they work on it very long term. Slowly, they move it and build it. They play formats where single expensive cards don't matter as much. There's just really interesting ways you can attack that. And then there's other games where you're playing mostly PvE, and it barely matters at all. Like, you're going lower on the leaderboards. But for but you're not actually like directly inflicting any like pain on somebody. Mm-hmm. I think games, for example, um, much more egregious than my opponent has a new gun that I don't have access to. Um, and I think I think it's worth noting that League of Legends also does this. <laughs> like you mentioned that League of Legends earlier, if you have access to champions, I don't have access to quite often when we're playing. Sure. 
Um, but it's fine because you can still fully and meaningfully contribute. Yeah. Um, and so there's lots of options you have. You can participate in your team. You can still win. You feel like like the amount of agency that you have over your experience is higher than the impact of the cost alone. And then there are other circumstances where simply rotating out the ability to use old stuff, like Magic the Gathering, for example, rotates out old sets out of standard all the time. They go somewhere else, so you can still play with those cards somewhere, and no one's going to stop you playing them around the kitchen table. But if you want to be competitive... You have to buy into the new cards every time they come up. It's, it literally says your old cards aren't good here anymore. Now, other games don't do this. Yu-Gi-Oh! doesn't do this. Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, everything's legal. And that game is an insane... If you don't like power creep, that game is insane power creep. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way for them to release something that... Because here's the thing. People often talk about pay to win or the new things coming out are just better than the old ones and that it's power creep and how much they hate it. Uh, power creep, actually, if you think power creep's bad, try a game that doesn't do it. Like it's if there is never a reason to play with the new thing that's released and people call you an idiot for doing it, that's not fun. Like the best thing to do is to for your economy is to align the player's incentives and the player's way of having fun with the developers' incentives. The developers want to keep having jobs and releasing more content for the game, and they want players to want to play with it and want to buy it. And then the players should be rewarded for doing that in some way. Um, it's very much up to you what you want to do at that point, because if you want to create a game where you're selling like new toys to play against each other, well, suddenly you're going to have to accept that, hey, if you want to play competitively in this game, you're going to have to spend at least as much money every month or so. And then you have to figure out like what's reasonable for that. $50 a month to, to have all the tools, is that reasonable? $10? $2? $1,000? Like, it's really much up to what type of experience you want to create and for whom. So very fundamentally i say like there is no inherently moral or immoral model except episodes except for something that episodes some things that are like incredibly obviously egregious like dishonesty about what is actually happening or trying to monetize trauma like the ability in certain free-to-play visual novels to like avoid bad endings for characters or so on that like you've come to care about that's messed up that's like a, that's that's seriously emotional manipulation but the very concept of paying for a access to an option that other people don't have is not inherently a bad or scary thing. And it's also worth noting as a final point there that it's not in isolation. Like games that don't have a way to monetize new content can't afford to keep making new content unless they happen to hit the jackpot and become a mega hit. And then any game that does that, no other games will come out in that genre like ever again <laughs> because they're a mega hit and they're already scraping the bargain of the, the bottom of the bargain basement. Nobody can undercut them on price. Nobody can scale up to their install base and try to and try to attack them that way. And so the financials mean that you just get no more games in this genre very often. Does this kind of so, explain why there's no more Dota likes since League of Legends, more or less? Right. I mean, like that's I mean, it's a super it's a big simplification. But yeah, right. like, League of Legends is a really big, like cheap. Uh, it's a massive player base, heavily enfranchised. It's very, very cheap to play. It's very, very equitable. That's great. And but they have to make sure they can sell you new champions, which is why they are like behind walls after a while. And it's why they come out stronger. Um, and then they eventually get nerfed down and the community just knows that that's going to happen. You know, we're all bad at the new champion. It'll be overpowered at first. It'll be tuned down. Like that is the psychology, at least, of a lot of the players discussion online. I'm not saying if I agree with it or not. But like other people then say, no, 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 the new champions <laughs> um, are 
at tier or below tier. There's any number of uh, philosophies behind it. But if you start looking at that, like you can't going after League of Legends would be suicide for most new developers because it's such a successful game. It's such a high retention game. Players are kept playing it. And it's very people. It's very very dangerous to try to pull people away from that. We mostly see great new games in genres where there it is very easy to get players to chase something new. People don't tend to play the same Metroidvania forever. They tend to look for new ones when they finish an old one, and so that's pretty good for indies, relatively cheap to make, and there's no long-term retention model. Um, also, though, your favorite um, series are not going to get DLC forever for that reason, because the player base gets smaller and smaller, and also it'll be paid DLC. So um, when you start looking into these systems, there's always costs. Like if you want to have a, a cosmetic-driven economy, that's great, but just know that one, you have to make it a very mass market, widely accessible game, usually isometric or third person, because you have the player has to be able to see their cosmetics and um, they has to be a PVP oriented game or or a social game of some point, which means multiplayer online stuff, which is going to make everything harder because other they need other people to see their cosmetics as well. And it has to be super, super accessible because you need no, cosmetics are not great monetization. Not many people buy cosmetics in these games. And so you're not going to see many games that are very small player bases, but are monetized only on cosmetics and successful. So if you want to make a niche focused dream game, you should try to figure out a reason why your game is worth somebody paying hundred to a thousand dollars for if it's going to be free to play, because that's how boutique industries work like you don't have a little shop that caters to one specific interest of making the best model planes ever or something and then have that be cheaper than the planes you buy at walmart and a lot of indie designers try to do that they try to say like i'm going to be cheaper and i'm going to have a more focused niche game um and so there's all these consequences you have to think about when you think about marketing it's not usually a situation of just do cosmetics or don't it's if you want to go cosmetics only you have to have a massive player base you have to be super accessible you have to be multiplayer you have to be isometric or third person um and like there are exceptions to these rules but they're very few because and so if you want to make a game of a certain type you often have to really make sure that your business model matches gives you an economic incentive to release more content of the type you want to release, or you have to accept that your game is going to like sell a certain number of copies and then players are going to stop playing it because there's nothing more meaningful for them to earn. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, I you know, as uh, part of my uh, sort of project is I, I really do believe in like a, a conception of the game as a service sort of in the sense like like my vision for it, the, my, you know, uh, is that that there would be some kind of subscription or something like that. Like I think subscription models, I, they're sort of not super popular in most genres of game, but I feel that those best align the incentives of a game designer and a player particularly for strategy games or you know games that are like sort of very designy where it's not always better for the game like to be adding more content into perpetuity mm -hmm. like i like if there was if, there, if if 10 years from now there was like 150 200 300 more league of legends characters i don't think that makes the game like like better <laughs> you know like at some point it starts to starts to sort of almost detract because it's just so much complexity it makes the it, it makes everything less distinctive you know what i mean like imagine That's the reason why like card games do rotation right Yes, yeah, but that is a way to help 
to help that with that problem for sure. Um, uh, but but uh, I'm just saying, like in, in a more general sense, I like the whole subscription model. Uh, but I, I did also want to ask you specifically about um, selling random items, selling you know booster packs or or th things that players don't even know necessarily what they're buying. Or I mean, they have some sense of it, but they you know they're not exactly sure what it is and whether that. You know, I, I think that some of that has been regulated in, cer in certain parts of the world. Um, yes. And I just what, what do you think of that? Because I, I, I can't put my finger exactly on it, but it, it seems like, especially when you think about like little kids buying random items, it does sort of seem like there's something maybe a little bit strange there. Um, so what, what do you think about that? I mean, it's very much a how do you execute it matters immensely. Like generally speaking, if you're being deceptive about the odds of what's going on in any way, that's like really just not okay with me <laughs> um, because you know the customer should know what they're buying. But fundamentally, I think that there's a lot of focus on the idea that you know because these things are limited, are similar in an uncertain payout, that makes them similar to gambling. Because they're similar to gambling, we know gambling is bad. Therefore, these things are immoral. And it's like that's. The psychology of a loot box has certain things in common with the psychology of gambling, but so does eating a, cheese, a grilled cheese sandwich. Like, that is also a dopamine hit. <laughs> so the idea of what are the what is harmful about gambling, what is harmful about loot boxes, is I think an extremely important thing to break down. And in some games, I think loot boxes are just pure good and make the game better and more moral, actually, than not doing that. Um, and I can break down some reasons why, but let's talk about why it's bad first. So people are, the reason gambling is super destructive is often you start kicking into loss aversion, um, where you say like, Hey, I've lost a thousand dollars now. I need to win it back. And mm -hmm. that takes you down a dark, dark path. Uh, <laughs> and, or, and so the issue is, um, in loot boxes though, you get to sunk cost fallacy. Like I've spent this sure. much money in this. And so I want to keep spending, but it doesn't it's not as strong for one thing because unless your game has some form of luck mitigation which is often a player friendly thing where it's like if eventually you will get a mythic you know if you keep going with the odds keep going up yeah but if you go pure random you know you're not actually any closer to your goal and so the sunk cost fallacy isn't as strong it's often like sunk cost is i have put this much time into this i have gotten further but now it's not worth finishing um but you've gotten so far that you want to keep going Whereas the psychology of the loot box isn't as strong in that regard. Um, additionally, though, it's like you, you don't usually loot boxes that turn into things that you can sell for real money are much more potentially destructive. Loot boxes that, but most games don't like to do that because they don't like to give players full freedom of in-game economies. Um, they mostly just want to say like, here is a random thing, and sometimes it'll be a really good random thing, and that is not inherently a bad thing at all. The issue is that um, any game that, for example, like one reason the Magic the Gathering works so well for this is nobody needs to engage with the booster pack. They can just buy from the singles market directly the exact card they want. But if they want, they can buy booster packs instead. And there's also ways to get extra fun from booster packs. So you can basically take a booster pack and play pack wars where you turn the booster pack into a format or you can draft with it and then take your cards out uh, for your winnings and then often prizes are like you get some packs to open and they're and they're they add this extra uncertainty and fun and and so in terms of like why are they often bad often they're bad because of two reasons one they are often signposting the jackpot you could get 
and they want to extract a lot of money from people to get that thing across $102 purchases trying to get it versus trying to get them to just buy the only things they want directly. Now, that is often very negative because it creates, um, one, it encourages people to spend more money than they, on things they actually don't want, and it also creates a, a cr incredibly unsatisfying moment. Every time you buy this thing, you get stuff you don't need, um, I, and that makes you feel sad. So I think that, however, you can design loot boxes to both do the important thing, which is often like to give new player, to give players that spend a little bit of money access to the chance of getting something awesome. And so they, if you can get their expectations that they know they're really unlikely to get it, or they don't really expect to, but they have that little bit of hope, then every now and then they have a bit of extra fun every time they buy a thing. And then sometimes it's a jackpot and they feel great. A great example of this actually is in like Eternals uh, chess. It's another card game. Um, if you open like a bronze chest in Eternal, mostly you get just gold out of it, sometimes a card. But every now and then you find a silver chest in your bronze chest. It just is a better chest. It's like five times as good. And you're like, oh my God, that's so cool. And sometimes you find a gold chest in your silver chest and a diamond chest in your gold chest. And one time I had a chest go from bronze all the way to diamond and it blew my mind. And like this, I didn't even, I don't even remember what was in it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it was so fun that I remember four years later, this awesome, exciting moment that I haven't had in many other games because I was not expecting to keep opening bronze chests to get a diamond chest. It's just that I was opening some bronze chests and it happened to just hit this amazing jackpot series that made this so much more fun. So that's very effective. The other major problem that free-to-play games have, especially if you have anything that's pay-to-win oriented, is how do you make this game a good experience for new player for players that spend nothing or a few dollars, as well as people that spend 50,000? The way to think about free-to-play gaming is that it is not Okay, this is this is a bit reductive. It's not all free-to-play gaming. But the way to think about most free-to-play gaming is that it is not a game. You're build, not building a game when you're building a free-to-play game, usually. You're building a hobby. Games cost about $60 to $70, and they take about you know 20 hours to play. Um, hobbies expand to fill your available time and budget. Mm -hmm. They're what you just choose to spend your discretionary money on and what you choose to spend your discretionary time on. If you start looking at other hobbies from outside of gaming, all of the weird things about free-to-play start to make so much sense. Look at like Star Wars action figure collecting or look at classic car collecting or something. The free-to-play player who's obsessed about cars is going to like read magazines online, watch videos, attend a local car show maybe once a year. The more mid-tier spender is going to travel to car conventions. They're going to have their own co classic car, the cheapest one possible that they got you know, broken up, and they're going to learn how to restore it. And learning how to fix up cars will become part of the hobby for them that richer players don't engage with at all. Then the super whale is going to be modeling the cars at the conventions that everybody else goes to that are like the classic cars from like Winston Churchill's car or, you know, whatever. And he's, he's bought that. It cost him $10 billion and it's going to be modeling that on the show. Everyone's going to go around going, Oh my God, this is so cool. And they're going to be asking him questions about it. He's going to be delighted because they're validating his investment while he's providing them something wonderful. Now that is a hobby that can engage players at all different spending brackets and have a really good time. Magic the Gathering can engage players at all different spending brackets and have a really good time. Not in the same place. You're not going to take a casual, you know, eight-year-old to a vintage tournament, but that's okay. There are spaces for these people. So one of the things that loot boxes do is they're somewhat democratic because as long as you can make buying a single loot box fun, 
then you can also potentially make buying 100 loot boxes fun. And as long as both of those things are good ways to experience the game, it works really well. Like, for example, often I talk about how a lot of games that succeed in this way, free-to-play players tend to have a longer progression. It tends to focus more on retention. They get chests or loot boxes very slowly, but they can't just net deck strategies or just copy somebody else's strategies online because they don't have access to all their tools, which is bad in terms of a competitive ability, but it's good in terms of encouraging creativity and a unique experience. This is why roguelikes don't usually let you choose exactly everything you want throughout a run. They give you access to different pools of random items and powers to choose from because that encourages you to have an experience about discovery. Then you unlock new powers and abilities as you go, sometimes relatively randomly based on what you did in a run. And that creates a journey of discovery and unpredictability and not having to optimize a singular path. And that can be really, really fun. Um, whereas more whale-like players will often buy everything they want on day one, and then they will focus intensely on mastering the competitive strategy. So it's a totally different experience. But right. if you offer a legendary card or something for $10,000, um, only people that have $10,000 are going to be able to buy that card. Um, you cannot get a Black Lotus in Magic the Gathering as a new player. It's just impossible. Whereas if it's a 0.001% chance in a booster pack you could open normally, you might be able to get access to it. Um, and, is that, and is the possibility of that better or worse than having no possibility of it? And it really depends on the presentation. Um, yeah, I mean, like, so I'm, I'm all about the lifestyle games, you know, the games as a hobby, yeah. as you just talk, as you describe it. Um, but for me, that, that, that does that, you know, I think about games like chess or tennis or, yep. um, uh, or League of Legends, actually. But, uh, so let me give you an example. Uh, uh, so Pokemon Unite just came out. I don't know if you are familiar with that yet. I haven't played it yet, but I've heard interesting things. Okay, yeah. So, like, uh, let me just tell you my experience and my feelings, and you could diagnose me and and you know give me the the <laughs> the, the, the diagnosis. But um, uh, so I got it. I I love the Pokemon characters. I've never been crazy about the games, but I I love the the character designs and stuff. And so uh, and I love the you know the Dota kind of ish sort of games. And so um, I got it and I started playing it and I started researching it a little bit and I found that uh, there are these items. There are basically like runes from League of Legends um, and uh, to fully equip a character, like to make them, you know, like their, I guess their full self or whatever, their, you know, their, their normal power, like a character would be with runes in League of Legends. Um, you need to play for, uh, you need to like do all the login, daily login bonuses. Uh, I forget the exact math, but it was like something like 90 days or something like that. Or you need to pay, pay $120. 40 bucks yep. for each item, something along those lines. And that's just have one character that's like, I guess you could say like, you know, tournament ready or something along those lines. And like, uh, I don't know, like that, that's, that's, that, that's, and on one hand, I'm like, I, I have the reaction of like, well, that sucks. Now I'm playing, I, you know, and every day I play and I'm just like, I, when I lose a fight or when something goes bad, I'm kind of like, well, did I play bad? Or was it just like, I didn't have the right stuff to like, you know, to seriously play this game. Um, right. and, and that's not an experience that happens in League of Legends. Even if people have other characters, the characters are all equal to each other. They're all side grades and they're all just different. They're not, none of them are better really than, than each other. Um, 
And so, so that, that's a negative experience for me. On the other hand, I kind of could rationalize it by saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm like learning this game. It's going to take me a, you know, a few months to like seriously learn this game anyway. And, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's fine that it takes me a while to like, you know, unlock the full version of the game. Um, it is free after all. Um, so I don't know. That, that's kind of like where I go with those kinds of thoughts. A lot of times I, I feel, I feel irritated by that, but I guess that stuff doesn't like, you know, it, uh have you had that experience before yourself well yeah i mean i there's so many games that i think that um like i'm really annoyed by the pay to pay to win models or pay to play models um the sorry one second i need to cut off but basically like my point is not that these things are inherently good inherently bad that's a philosophical thing that i was uh, um, talking about earlier yeah saying that there's no such thing as an inherently morally good mechanic or design. Like, you can have a mechanic that makes people paranoid, afraid, frustrated, and want to stop playing the game. Congratulations, you've made the next great amnesia. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you've made a wonderful horror game. Um, so the core idea here is what is the design, the emotional effect creating the player, and is that what you want? And even if it isn't, is that buying you something else that you want even more or need even more? So I, there's some things I could talk about if I was playing Devil's Advocate that says that there might be good reasons for when you lose to sort of not blame your own skill. Sure. Magic the Gathering designers, I'm, it's on top of my brain because I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently from them, will talk a lot about how the fact that magic deck matchup and RNG in the match is responsible for a large portion of the gameplay is one reason why good players... With um, can be beaten by weaker players, and they see that as very good. Mm-hmm. It allows people of different skills to play together. Chess is really bad at this. Sure. <laughs> like, if you're talking, if you try to play against a better player with chess, you're going to lose every single time. Yeah, and you will very quickly learn that the game is not for you. Whereas, if you can ha- hope that hey, he's more progressed than me, but if there's a cap, eventually I'm going to catch up. Um, <clears throat> or if you can blame luck. Or a teammate, or any number of things. Sure. Ironically, that doesn't help. You, that doesn't help you get better, but provides emotional cover. So often, if people like lose in a game a few times, and it's perfectly fair, they quit with no luck or anything. They psychologically start to assume the game isn't for them, mm. and so they don't. And so mm. often, they will quit more often, or they'll feel worse about themselves. Yeah. One thing that, like, I think designers should do a lot in strategy games, as an example, but really any games is protect the player from feeling stupid, as an example. Mm. Like, something that Hearthstone does that's brilliant is that a lot of its older cards, less so now, especially its classic cards, <coughs> did things that protected the player from accidentally feeling stupid. Like, a card will say, destroy not a creature, destroy not a minion. It'll say, destroy an enemy minion. Now, a lot of designers would say, you should make it destroy any minion, because in some circumstances, you will want to destroy your own minion. Like, maybe they give you a really powerful minion that but has a drawback, or it has a powerful death rattle or any number sure. of things. It increases the strategy. So let's just do it. And it makes the, the card simpler. Three words, destroy a minion yeah. rather than destroy an enemy minion. But I think enemy minion is in most cases better because in Hearthstone, you have to drag the card from your hand to your opponent's board and your own creatures are in between those two things. So uh. a non-zero amount of time you will accidentally release on your own creature mm-hmm. or you will click the wrong card in hand, meaning to play a buff on your creature and play a destroy, destroy effect instead. Right. So, the making an enemy makes it an invalid target. 
which means that you have limited your strategic space, but you have substantially limited your player's ability to feel frustrated and dumb. <laughs> like often, like I found that if I'm playing a strategy game and I make a, a misclick or a bad mistake or I lose track of what I'm counting, I was like, God, I'm so bad at this game. Like, I'll say it out loud. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's and I'm not really. It's just I made a mistake. And strategy games have to have players making mistakes. Otherwise, they would be only about luck. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm saying is, like, there's a lot of psychological angles to this whole thing. And it's really interesting to figure out, like, what that would work. Another example might be for, like, you were talking about the pace that League of Legends releases champions. Sure. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. If champions are just side grades and there's nothing to progress with them, you can burn out on the game very quickly. There's a good phrase that I've noticed in free-to-play, which is saying that um, like fun is ephemeral as a goal to keep playing. Like At first, you play a thing because it's fun, and then you play it for like two weeks, and you start to get bored. <laughs> and, so you, and so you start looking for other things. But goals, progression goals, um, will keep you motivated even in those moments where you're not feeling like it's that fun. And then it'll be, and as you unlock a new ability, it'll become fun again. And then you'll play with that for a while. And then you start working on your next ability and it'll, it'll become fun again. Um, and so from that angle, progression actually can means that if it takes longer to max out a character before you feel like it's done and it's competitive ready, that might mean they can spend more time releasing a few awesome characters than releasing as many characters to keep things, you know, to constantly shake things up. So there's a lot of interesting ripple effects. I'm not having played the game. I can't say I have an opinion on it. But my go point that I just want to keep linking back to free-to-play is... What is your goal for the player experience? <laughs> is this game achieving it? And what are the ripple effects? There are so many circumstances in which a game should not have anywhere certain things monetized at all. I have been working on free play games fought against many systems being monetized, mm -hmm. saying that's not the goal of this system. This system is not supposed to be making money. This system is supposed to be making players want to play the game. Sure. And that, and that will keep the ecosystem. This system is supposed to be a celebration system. Or this system is supposed to be about engagement. Or this system is supposed to be very cheap and accessible so that players can access the system if only with this small amount of money and still feel like it matters a lot. This system might be this infinite time sink um, and be an infinite money sink if you have somebody who's like a, mil a bored millionaire that just wants to throw money in a giant money pit to get a 2% edge or something. Like... These are things that all can exist, and it's really based on what is your goal, and are you accomplishing it, and what are you sacrificing? If, play, there's, if players love your game, and they want to play it, that is a very good thing. And also, the thing I want to talk about is we should all aspire in some ways to do things like Warframe's timers. Um, like, I am a huge fan of Warframe, and one of the things I love about Warframe is one of their most, they have one of the most egregious and often offensive artificial pay, like, free-to-play style things in the world, which is their crafting timer. Like, you will start a crafting project, and you'll have to come back 12 hours to three days later to get the thing you started crafting. Um, and you had to farm resources to craft it. But the thing is, if you could pay to skip the timer, but I never want to pay to skip the timer, or almost never do, the timers make the game more fun than if they didn't have them. Because the way they're set up, basically... Um, I am not locked out of progressing while I have something crafting. I just start working on farming materials for my next crafting project. Warframe has a progression system that is based around going wide in order to go tall. You have to keep constantly craft new items and play with them to get more materials to craft other items. You don't even care what the items are. You just want to. Get, you just have to craft and progress a lot of items. Because whenever you progress an item, you progress your own character and unlock the ability to unlock better things. 
Um, so you just want to get a lot of toys. So you can just still progress and keep playing. You're not waiting. You're locked out of the game until that happens. But if you wanted to take a break, you could. So I constantly, when I'm playing Warframe, have like a series of Amazon deliveries on their way to me, right? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, yeah, tonight I'm going to get to play with my new toy. And then I'm playing with my new toy tonight for toy one while I'm farming toy three and I'm waiting for toy two. And that is just so satisfying and fun to me. And it makes me actively be thinking about planning and strategies my crafting. Like, okay, I'm going to start crafting this now so that when I'll have that when this comes up. And it creates all this fun meta engagement. So like... This is always why I come back to my original point, which is whenever I design anything, whether it's just gameplay or monetization or economy or whether it's engagement or just you know a PvP mode, what is the experience for the player and what is the experience? What is the goals for the player experience and what are the goals for the developer? The goals for the developer are often things like we need to improve retention, or we want to make we want to make the user experience more welcoming, or we want to make sure that players understand the cool how cool this feature is and how useful it is, or we want to teach them something, or we want to make something cheap and, and efficiently that works within our existing systems, any number of things like that. But the main goal is the player goals, which is what I want this to feel like it is an exciting, engaging thing, or I want the player to feel tense and paranoid here, or I want the player to feel triumphant and powerful here. And then once we, I want the player to feel motivated to keep playing and excited to come back to the game every day. What designs can I do to create that? And because games are such complex systems with so many complex incentives about how you build them, the technology you build them, the, the ways you sell them, and the ways you can build it, you just have to focus on aligning your players' incentives with your incentives. To your point on subscription-driven games, certain games work great for subscriptions, certain games don't. Like, any game that has bad retention is really bad for a subscription-driven game. A subscription-driven visual novel is going to have a hard time. So how do you sell a visual novel in that model? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of like competitive games, you know, strategy mm -hmm. games. Like that, that's my world, sort of. And so that's why for for that kind of game, I'm, I'm very in favor of a subscription model. I'm also like, you know, I think that there is a there's some some other models that are kind of in between a subscription model or like a. Um, uh, I really like the demo, basically the old shareware model. Honestly, like uh, I, yeah. I, I, I still <laughs> like that. Um, and I also, you know, I'm, I think premium, there's ways you can like twist premium into being something that can work sort of uh, if like, but I, but I don't know. I think pre premium is probably the one that is like for the, the least aligned with uh, with the incentives of uh, a game as a service, which most, you know, online competitive games probably need to be. Um, to some degrees. Um, one of the advantages of, of premium is that people that buy it have a motivation to play for a little while. Like if you force them to buy a subscription up front, they also have a motivation, so it's okay. Sure, sure. But like, but like if there's no free gateway, um, like free gateways make it easy to try out, but it's often very hard to stick with. Like for example, on Feria, Feria actually tried a lot of different models over time, and I can't give like specific examples of what happens exactly, but there was for a while in early access, the game was pay to play, and then it was like free to play. Um, and then it was like, you know, buy, you could pay $50, and buy everything. Then you could buy, pay $50 or $25 and, buy, and get like a good foundation and earn the rest really fast. <clears throat> what was interesting was the things that I thought would be like the most, like, in, like often it was interesting is that players that paid for the game up front were more willing to get over the initial hump to play enough of it to learn the strategy 
and then the game hooked them for a huge amount of time yeah. <laughs> because they had invested something. So they wanted to consciously play with it more. And then they that helped them get over this hump. So I think that like if a game is like has a rough upfront learning curve, making creating a bit of a monetary barrier to trying it out mm. is probably a good thing, actually, because yeah. <laughs> like it makes people say, like, am I serious about this? Yeah. And all right, I'm going to play it. All right. Fuck. You know, it's like I mean, Dark Souls is free to play, which is not work. Right. right. You, people would bounce off of it instantly. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, all right, so we're pretty much out of time. I, I do want to say thank you so much, uh, Dan, for doing this. It's been really interesting. I mean, I think we, you know, I come a little bit more from like the board game-ish kind of world, and it's just a very different aesthetic and a different, uh, you know, needs and requirements and stuff. So it's been very interesting and, and challenging and uh, in the good way um, to hear you talk about this kind of stuff and um, enlightening. Uh, so thanks so much. Uh, is there anything you want to like uh, talk about or, uh, you know, uh, send people to i know you write articles on game design and stuff like that yeah sure um so what they want to say is actually like i come from the board game card game world like as a foundation well i um, mean specifically the yeah. not ccg board game world so like you know oh, yeah, euros yeah. and stuff like that no no i play tons of them I, okay, I, cool. I do i do board game design jams all the time i actually think i want to say is if you are interested not you specifically obviously but like if people listening are interested in learning game design the best way to do it is to start with your goal learn cognitive science which i'll get to in a second which i want to talk about but to do it in paper and on board games and card games and role-playing games mm -hmm. like you need to learn like computer science in general or how to use engines but the most important things is like you need to get your iteration time up like i do constant with people at work like every few months i will do like a weekend game jam where we would just make a whole game not on computers but We'll go through like five iterations of a game in like just on paper or on board games. Like we will modify rules. We'll do jams where like, let's play Monopoly. Okay, what are the pain points? What are our goals? Let's improve Monopoly. Mm -hmm. Let's change the rules to Monopoly and see to, to try to make the game to solve a specific design goal problem. Let's change the rules to risk. What can we do? Because 99% of game design is not, this is also one reason I don't like the philosophy standpoint. 99% of game design is not reasoning from first principles it sure. is we have a game that is already working but not well enough how do we make it better yeah like if you are hired in the game industry this is your job you have a game how do i make it better so modding board games is an incredibly good way to try that out because the iteration cycle is instant just like all right we already have a game let's change a rule let's play again so can i recommend that enough mm, um, i agree yeah, the uh, um, I do the podcast um, on tabletop role-playing games, uh, narrative and design, if you're interested. It's uh, the GM's Guide. I have a blog post at danfelder.net. Um, I have some random ramblings and thoughts on game design. Uh, but one thing I want to really recommend as well is that uh, you asked me earlier in a private message, like, why do I write about game design when I do? Mm -hmm. Why do I create content for it? And for me, it's like I approach game design from a very conscious perspective. I tend to think about games as there are right answers and there are wrong answers. And more importantly, there are right answers and wrong answers for the creative process. I spend at least as much time designing my creative process and trying to improve the way I design as I do on anything I actually design. It has been amazingly useful. Mm. I try to always rethink, think about you know, new cognitive biases, new ways my brains are thinking about problems. Certain, whenever I run into a mistake or I see someone made a mistake, I try to figure out how did that mistake happen? How was it missed? What in the process could I change to change the way I think about this problem? Mm. Like, 
I engineer creativity often. I sure. ask if I hit if I hit blocks. I ha um, in my design. I ask questions from different angles to get my brains thinking in different ways. And um, if I was going to recommend anything, game designers, please don't just like look at game design videos and read articles. Please do that too. Um, but please also go to cognitive science. Read the book Decisive by the Heath brothers, Chief Heath and Dan Heath. Almost anything they write is great. But it is fundamentally a book about how do humans make decisions? And games, especially strategy games, are all about making decisions. But also, humans, like us, have to also make decisions. Understanding about cognitive biases is hugely helpful with that. Hmm. The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, wonderful book. Um, the best one ever is probably Celia, that currently at least, is Celia Hodens, The Gamer's Brain. It's uh, She's a UX a researcher um, behind Fortnite. Um, I think she's the lead of that. Um, and she's just absolutely brilliant. Use, and user experience design is... A very, a very, very powerful field. Understanding how humans think about problems. How, why do they feel certain things? Why do they think certain things are good? How do they evaluate and value things is the most important element. And this is why we get to the issues of like Dark Souls, where you have um, Dark Souls 2, where people are saying that it's bad, but they can't articulate the real reasons why. Mm -hmm. Because... One of my favorite stories about game balance, an objective thing, and I always give talks on game balance at any studio I join. Um, I'm always asked to do it. And basically, um, I, I spent the first half of the talk setting up ways to think about balance, ways to analyze problems and so on. And then I give a case study about like, here's a bunch of guns. Um, people say one of the guns is underpowered. Um, what would you look at fixing? And then the answer in this real case study, which was mentioned in a GDC talk, was the gun was not making a sound that was cool enough. Mm -hmm. Like it just didn't sound like a powerful shotgun. It sounded very wimpy, but players weren't saying the sound is bad. They were saying the gun is too weak. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And then when the gun's sound was improved and patched, then they said, thanks for buffing the damage. <laughs> <laughs> so like the issue is human perception, human psychology, perception is reality. You have to understand how do humans perceive things, color, balance, anchoring, how the brain works. These things matter immensely if you want to have a good game, even if you think your game is objective. And so as you are diving into game design, it's a wonderful, beautiful, strange, mysterious, delightful thing. And that's one reason I love game writing about games so much, because writing about game design, it always feels like I'm diving into this weird mass of human emotions and trying to take something that feels subjective but create object, as objective as possible tools based on psychology that work. Not to say any one answer is ever always correct, but processes and how humans react to things are very, very predictable. And so coming at it from that angle, you can get better very, very quickly. And I find that often anybody, any designer who has studied cognitive science to any amount tends to have a real edge in the industry because a lot of people can't you know, predict how a system will work ahead of time. But a cognitive, but someone who knows about cognitive science can often say, "Oh, well, this is just, you know, this is going to create loss aversion, so players aren't going to like it." Sure, <laughs> um, yeah. And so there's a lot of very useful things you can get out of that, and I highly recommend anybody checks it out. So for when I write about design and write about design theory and principles, I like to approach it from what are practical tools that make it easier for me to make a game. And turning my thoughts into those problems to write an article started as ways for me just to explain concepts to myself and organize my thoughts into useful frameworks because our brains, 
need to organize information into patterns so that we can execute them. Otherwise, you get lost in this mass of instincts and emotions, and our instincts and emotions are almost never trustworthy as truth because they're so bound up in so many of our experiences. You might love this inventory system in this one game, but it makes no sense in another. So building those patterns and the information that extraction is the reason I often like write about games. It's more, more for me than anybody else, but luckily other people have seemed to like it too. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for doing this and coming on the show. And uh, everyone should check out uh, Dan's work. I will also post links to those books that you mentioned in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for doing this. My pleasure. Have a great one. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, this is the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. Uh, if you want to support this show, make sure to head over to patreon.com slash keepergun, where you can do that. Uh, also, uh, I hope that you'll come by the Discord and hang out and chat. We talk about all kinds of things all the time, and it's a great place to hang out. And also, I'm working on new stuff for Gem Wizards Tactics all the time. We have a map editor coming soon. Very exciting. There's a Switch version of the game coming soon. There is all kinds of stuff. I'm hoping that it's going to be great on the Steam Deck. So, um, and there's new stuff in terms of card games, too, for me. So uh, you definitely want to come by and check all that stuff out. And I hope to see you around. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time.